morning, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that I recently started an exposition of 1 Timothy. We're going to take a break from that as uh, we did last year on Resurrection Sunday and, and examine the resurrection specifically. So if you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the classic chapter in that letter to the Corinthian church on Paul. It's a whole treatise on the resurrection and the implications of that. That whole entire chapter deals with the resurrection. And uh, last Easter, I, I dealt with the first 11 verses of that chapter, and so we're going to continue working our way through it on this Easter Sunday as well. Well, when we think about the doctrine of resurrection, it is so vital, as I've already said to you this morning, it's the linchpin of the gospel. So for, for the gospel to be true, for salvation to be procured and won, for all the, the faith that we have and the faithfulness that that generates and the grace that we cling to, for all those things to be meaningful and true, the resurrection has to happen. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel hope. Because if there is no defeat of death, if there is no final conquering of the power of death, then, beloved of God, we are to be pitied <laughs> because we will live and we will die, and that will be that. That's the naturalistic worldview, atheism. We live, we die, and then we cease to exist except for the reality that Christ says no, no. And he said no when he walked out of the tomb alive on that Sunday morning. He defeated death. Now, you may say, Brad, but we all still die. But it's not the same anymore. We don't die to eternal torment. We don't die to nothingness. We shed the vestiges of this sin-cursed world and embrace the kingdom of heaven in the presence of Christ, and then when He returns back to the world to fully and finally consummate His kingdom, we will get those glorified resurrection bodies and live bodily, bodily with Christ. Right? So we're not just wispy spirits in the clouds. We are bodies living with Christ, and that's because of the resurrection. Without further delay, let's turn our attention. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. So that's going to be our passage this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in all, Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, or the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, that your word is before us. It's powerful. It's true, and it gives us hope. Be with us this morning as we study. 
engage our hearts, engage our minds. But Father, may this not be merely an academic exercise. May this be transformational for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Paul mentions the word first fruits in this little paragraph twice, and that idea is rooted in the Old Testament. When the, so when the Israelites, they would give the first sheaf of the harvest, it was consecrated to God, and it was dedicated as, a, as, a, as an offering to God, but also that first fruits had specific meaning for them. When you see the first sheaf of wheat or the first sheaf of grain or, or whatever crop they're harvesting, it represents a coming harvest. So you're looking at the first of more to come. So in that sense, it represents God's provision. It's a guarantee of harvest to come. But it's also a, a rich gift to the Lord by the Israelites. I'll, I'll share a story with you. Uh, when John and I actually was with me on this trip, when I, we went to Africa in 2008, we went to a little village in Malawi. And we went to a church service one Sunday morning. I've probably shared this before. And it was during the harvest and it was the first fruits. Now, this was not a Presbyterian church there like the Presbyterian churches are here. They were very jubilant and dancing. And as they, John, I don't know if you remember this, when the farmers were bringing the bags of grain, it was their first fruits. They were bringing their first fruits to the church and dancing down the aisle and laying them at the feet of the pulpit where the pastor was. And they were, they were signifying in worship, God has been faithful. Look, we have the harvest. The harvest has come. And what made me break down in tears is when the pastor, some of that goes to the pastor, that was part of his salary, but then the pastor prayed over it, consecrated again to the Lord and said, now this will be distributed to the poor. Well, beloved, they were pretty poor, but they were taking the first fruits and giving them to God so that God might bless the other villages surrounding. It is a memorable experience. I didn't walk away thinking, man, I'm lucky I have so much. I walked away thinking, God, give me that type of faith and joy. Because when, when, you, when we were there and we would hear the people laughing, it is a laughter like I've never heard anywhere else. It comes deep from the gut because there was joy there. Now, I'm, I'm getting far afield from my point. The first fruits. The first fruit is a picture of rich provision of the Lord to sustain His people. And so what the Israelites, what was, what was the abundant life? We hear so much of that from the prosperity gospel nonsense. I'm not even going to call the prosperity gospel a gospel. The prosperity you know, lie. The Israelite, for the abundant life for them, it was a rich harvest. <laughs> it was a large family. It was provision of the Lord to sustain His people and the wisdom of the Lord to teach them how to live. So for, for them, for the Old Testament saint to have an abundant life, he had his family with him. He, had his, he was harvesting his crops. He had his land allotment. And he was applying the wisdom of the Lord to his life or her life. When we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as I said to you a while ago, it is about the resurrection and the implications of that for God's people. So no resurrection. We've already stated we are helpless. We are hopeless. We have no hope of future life because every claim that Jesus made depends on the resurrection. Everyone. It depends on the resurrection. And so Paul doesn't merely want us to be convinced of the resurrection, although he does, at the very least he wants that. He wants us to grasp the ripple effects of it. So not just believe that it happened, not just believe that it's true, but to understand that it has implications for our lives, how we live, how we think, how we understand even the gospel. And so Jesus didn't only die to save us from hell. That's not the only reason Jesus died. 
Jesus died and rose to give us life and life more abundantly. That's what he says in the Gospels. Jesus died and rose so that you and I could realize the fullness of our humanity because until we are connected with Christ, something is missing. We are created for relationship. That is why we are inherently relational, even if we're introverts like me. We're inherently relational because Jesus, God, the Father, has created us to be relational, one with another, yes, but with Him. And when that, and when that aspect of our lives is missing, something about our own humanity is missing. And so we don't merely just preach a message that will help you have a good life and be happy and, you know, all. No, we're actually preaching a message that bids you come and die to come and lay your life down and my life down so that we can have a life as it's meant to be had in Christ. And so the present paragraph in front of us that we just read is very similar to Romans 5. One man brought death and destruction to the world. One man brought hope of eternal life to his people. And so when we talk about the resurrection, it's more than saying Jesus was right about his claims. It is that. At the very least, it's that. But it means that we have new life and a new identity for those who trust in Him. And so resurrection is a promise. The resurrection of Jesus on that Sunday morning was the, it was the seal of a promise. The hymn, writer for all the, for the hymn writer who wrote for all the saints captured it in my favorite line out of that hymn when he says, But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day, the saints triumphant rise in bright array, and the King of glory passes on His way. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. That is one of the richest lines in hymn history that I have ever come across because that captures the heart of what resurrection means. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning, and it's this out of this paragraph. Christ is the guarantee of our resurrection. Christ is the guarantee of our resurrection. So when we're looking at this, we're reading through this, this paragraph is all about life and life renewed. So this morning, we're kind of talking about the promised life that we have in Christ, and the resurrection is that guarantee. It is the seal of abundant, eternal life. And I'm using abundance here. Don't think monetarily. That's not my implication. The abundant life is the full, rich life that we have in Christ that feeds from the fountain of truth and grace constantly. That's the abundant life, I mean, the life where we are free to love and obey Christ, the life we are free to say no to our sin and to our flesh, the life where we are free to sacrifice ourselves for the good and glory of a good and glorious God. So that's what I'm talking about when I use the word abundant life. Now, when we, we get into this paragraph, we're kind of, uh, Paul makes a comparison here between the, the death and life. It's in verses 20, 21, and 22. He kind of gets into this comparison of death and life, and the reality is simple, that we are enslaved to death without Christ, that in Adam, death has come, and so we are enslaved to that, and Christ brings new life. The reason in the ESV, it starts with this but, that adversative but, but, there's a reason for that, because 12, verses 12 to 19 are talking about the hypothetical if Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, um, how can uh, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And he lays out an argument from a negative slant, talking about the implications if Christ has not been raised. But, he changes gears here and says, but now Christ has been raised. 
So we don't need to deal with the hypothetical. He is risen. He's raised. He's living. And that has implications for us. It says that in verse 20, he's been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he has conquered death in himself. That's the implication of that, that Christ has conquered death in himself. Why? For that Greek word, if you've ever heard of somebody named Zoe, it comes directly from a Greek word, Zoe. That means life, and it doesn't just mean the outworkings of life. It means the source of life itself. So Jesus is alive because he is life. And what that does for us, you see, when we read verse 20, the implication is that Christ is living. But it, what it means for you and for me on street level is that he can conquer death in us too. So now, because he's conquered death in himself and conquered death in general, he can conquer death and his people. And in fact, he has to for us to have a relationship with him. But it calls him here, Paul calls him the first fruits. And as I told you, that has implications. It means he's the first of what's to come. He is the promise of eternal life that because he lives, we live. Because he lives, we have life and have it eternally with him. And so Paul is just kind of laying the foundation, continuing to lay the foundation for the implications of the resurrection. And then he says here, for as by a man death came, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. So he's making a reference to Adam here. And we need to understand the biblical concept of death. So if you were to look up, <laughs> one time I looked up death or dead in a dictionary and it said not living. It's like, well, that wasn't very helpful. Um, so I, I, we know that death is in some meaningful way not living, but there's, a, there's an implication in Scripture about death. Death doesn't just mean not living. It means separate. So that's why when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that they were not supposed to in the garden, a death did occur. At, at that point, they knew that their spirit would be separated, or God is imposing this spirit being separated from their body. That's why some people think that death is the most natural thing we face. You've heard me say this before, and it's actually not. There's something inside of us that says it's not supposed to be this way because God created us as one being. And for that to be split apart, a separation occurs. Death also has implications that sin alienates us from God. And so when we talk about death in a biblical terms, uh, those who are separated from, or alienated from God because of sin, in a sense, are dead because they are disconnected from the source of life. And that's why Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins to the Ephesian church, laying the groundwork to help people understand the necessity of the life of Christ. And since we are all in Adam, i.e. we are connected to Adam by our humanity, we have a death problem. We have a death problem that only the life of Christ can solve. I love how he says here, For by one man came death, one man has come the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You've got two prepositional phrases there that are very important. In Adam and in Christ. And they both kind of determine where we are. We are all in Adam because we are human. But we believe in Christ by faith. And so in Christ, he says, all will be made alive. Now, Brad, is he saying that everybody without discrimination? Is this Paul advocating some sort of universalism, saying that all will eventually be made alive in Christ? No, he's not. And there's a few ways that we can determine this. The all here is not without discrimination. It's in Christ. All who are in Christ shall be made alive. And a few verses down 
in verse 23, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. So He's qualifying this all out of, with a phrase, in Christ, and then verse 23, with those who belong to Christ. So that's, the, that's the, the point that Paul is making. So our humanity connects us with Adam, but faith connects us with Christ. It's exactly what Paul would say again in the Ephesian letter in chapter 2 when he says, it is by faith that you have been saved through grace, and this is not of yourself so that no one may boast. And so Paul is here connecting our hope with Christ, our life with Christ, and even that when we die in Christ, we still have cause to rejoice because that death is not final. And so when we think about Jesus and our connection to Him, we understand that it is completely by faith. Beloved, by faith, we believe and cling to the fact that Jesus heals as far as the curse is found. By faith, we believe that Jesus is guiding us to a good end through this life. By faith, we hope and we know that we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, this faith that connects us with Christ, it's not hollow. It's not that maybe this will happen. Hopefully this will work out. It's the assurance that Christ, who loved us and called us, will carry us and present us pure, white, and sparkling before the Father. And beloved, if, you know, there, there are hard, hardships in this life. There are trials in this life. And you may be going through one right now, and you're desperately clinging to faith. Cling, because lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. Indeed, and by faith, we know that this is true. Paul spends the remainder of this paragraph from verses 23 to 28 kind of expounding on the kingdom of God. So for in 22, he said, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But in verse 23, he said, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So when we think about the resurrection, what is the ultimate goal of resurrection? The ultimate goal. Obviously, there are fruits of the resurrection. We are made alive with Christ. The ultimate goal of the resurrection is to establish the kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of God into its fullness, which will eventually happen when Christ comes and consummates His kingdom. But what he's getting at here. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. We see that again. Christ will come in his resurrection glorified body. And his primary goal at that point is to establish the kingdom of God, but also to impart the same glorified resurrected bodies to his people. Now, not that we share the same glory of Christ, but he is the first fruits of what is to come for us. So when we see Christ in his resurrected glory, we are seeing what we will be. Now hear me, we're not, we're not going to be one with Jesus in the sense that we're going to be like Him in His glory. We're going to be one with Jesus as He calls us into His kingdom to rule and reign with Him for eternity. And so Paul is making a kingdom statement here. That the Christian hope, the Christian hope is the final resurrection. Then the end comes when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The Christian hope is the final resurrection. When Jesus comes back, He's coming back to bring the end with Him. He's bringing the end to all that is. And when this end comes, a new heavens and a new earth that John talks about in Revelation, 
new bodies for the people of God. The dead in Christ will rise and be given new bodies. Those who are alive when Christ comes will be transformed into their resurrected bodies. And all this happens at the consummation of Christ when the work is fully and finally completed. And what it says here is that Every, he will, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, that he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And so the end is seen as the power of wickedness being vanquished. All of the things that are, are set themselves up against the Lord being destroyed. And then the Son presenting the finished work to the Father. I love the picture that Paul paints in Ephesians 5, again, where he talks about the bride of Christ being the pure, spotless bride that the Son presents to the Father. When we see this here in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, for me, I know myself, I know my flesh, I know my own sin patterns, I know what type of man I can be, and yet I'm so heartened and encouraged that I am part of a pure, spotless bride, that I will stand, and you, if you're in Christ this morning, will stand in the presence of Christ and will not know an inkling of shame because we are loved. We are loved. Jesus loved us to the point of death, even death on a cross. Loved us enough to give us His righteousness. Loved us enough to present us to the Father. This is my son. This is my daughter. They are yours and they are pure. What a glorious thought this Resurrection Sunday as we consider that yes, a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up. Yes, we may slip and fall into sin. Yes, we may have seasons of repeated sin, but repentance is true because of Christ. Life is true because of Christ. Sin is conquered because of Christ. And we stand victorious over death because of Christ. And all of that, every bit of it, is sealed in the resurrection. When Christ comes walking out of that tomb, it's all sealed forever. And so that we are as righteous now as we ever will be, let that sink in. I know sometimes we say, well, I can't wait to get to heaven and I'll be a better person. That's true. You will. So, yeah, you can keep telling yourself that. But understand that in the eyes of God, you are so righteous now because of the life and death of Christ that you are as righteous as you ever will be. And that's something to celebrate. Now, don't, don't, don't leave here and say, well, the pastor said I don't have to work on my sanctification because I'm righteous. I'm not saying that. <laughs> work on your sanctification. Paul says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and so I also advocate that as I'm doing that in myself. Yes, take the Word of God and let the mirror of it shine the light on the sins in your heart and in your body and in your mind and continue to flee youthful passions. Do all that. But be encouraged, beloved. If you are in Christ this morning, you are loved and you are righteous. Hang on to that and don't let the world rob you of that rich truth. I love what the life of Christ does because the life of Christ, it does two things. It does two things. It reverses all that is dead. It brings life to what is dead and it makes everything beautiful in its time. The life of Christ brings beauty, truth, and life. Paul continues, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So Paul is saying Jesus is reigning. He's reigning right now. He's ruling. 
And what does that mean for you and me? That he must reign until he puts, so there's that little until, so there's a space of time that he's reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So the implication for you and me in that is that we, we, have, we have the opportunity to wait on the Lord. We have the opportunity to, in the intervening time, trust in the Lord, especially when all the news and all the tidings we see are mostly evil and we hear one evil thing after another. We have to remember, in spite of that, Jesus is reigning. And because Jesus is reigning, I can wait and I can trust in Him. Because we are told here that He will put His enemies under His feet. That under His feet is an Old Testament picture of victory. That's kind of what you would, that's common in the Old Testament to speak of that. It's, an, it's just saying that Christ is victorious, that His enemies will fall. And then he says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When we look at Jesus here, we're looking at a foretaste of the coming kingdom. He is a foretaste of what's in store. Life that can't be squelched by death. Righteousness, perfect righteous, glory. No sin, no shame, no sadness, no more tears. Joy, unabated, undiluted joy. And make no mistake, beloved, you're not going to sit in heaven regretting the things that you didn't do or regretting the things that you did do because those things were washed away. There is no more regret because there's no more shame. There's no more guilt. There's no more death. We will stand in the presence of God with joy. Unquenchable joy. He says the last enemy is death. The life of Christ overcomes. John captures that so well in the prologue to his gospel. Light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That is the truth of Christ. That is the truth of the life of Christ, that his life and light shine in the darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome it. In fact, in the, in the face of the life of Christ, death has to flee. Death will be no more. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is not saying it might be. This is a promise. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It will be. It's going to be destroyed. And we look at this, and it's in fact for you and me, if you're in Christ this morning, it's, it's in some sense it's already destroyed. Now, it's still an enemy, but it's lost its sting, as Paul will later say in this very chapter. Why? Because now, what does death do? Well, it doesn't keep us separate from God. It actually ushers us into the presence of God so that when we step out of this life, beloved, we are stepping into glory. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul would say. And so now death is not the thing that we should fear. Death is not the main enemy. It is an enemy. Now the enemy that we need to fear in our own minds and hearts is apathy, becoming aloof to the things of God or thinking that it doesn't matter or thinking, oh, well, you know, God's got me. I don't have to worry about my life. I'm just, just let go and let God. No. No, apathy. Apathy will destroy a person more quickly than almost anything else because when I choose not to care, when I choose to be indifferent, when I choose to be aloof, I'm going down the road that is opposite to a life lived with zeal for Christ. So we have the eternal life of Christ at work in us, beloved, and it's moving us to a good end. 
Paul says here, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. For God the Father has put all things in subjection under the feet of the Son, Jesus. So all things are under Christ, but Paul does clarify. I found it kind of humorous that he did this. He says, but when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, Paul is clarifying God the Father is not in subjection to God the Son. God the Father is not in subjection to God the Son. He's, he's making a statement about God here that is important. All things are under Christ, and, and the Father, God the Father, is ruling. He's ruling and reigning. And this is undergirded by the fact that in Revelation chapter 4, after you get through the letters to the church, it's one of the first things we're confronted with is the throne room of God. So we see God reigning over all creation, and Paul is just making sure that we understand that the Father is enthroned in heaven. He's not, he's not getting at the being and the identity of God the Father. He's, he's putting Him over all things in heaven, ruling and reigning. And everything is subject to the will of God. And when we think about the Son, we are told repeatedly in Scripture, and Colossians is one of them, and Hebrews makes some statements about the Son being the express image of the Father. And so the Son, as the express image of the Father, the second person in the Trinity, God the Son, He rules and reigns with the Father. And again, you see this worked out also in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5, when the Lamb stands in the center where the throne of the Father is. But when we think about, why does Paul even take the time to mention God's rule? Because it's important. Because you know what it means? He's kind of getting at this, the, the deeper philosophy and theology that our world is not meaningless, that our world is not purposeless, that we're not just atoms bouncing around running into each other in some sort of controlled chaos, that the world has meaning and our world has order, and it's all moving in a direction. There's a plan transpiring. And sometimes it doesn't feel or it doesn't feel like it's a good plan if maybe we're going through hard times. But there is. There is a plan of God at work and it's unfolding. In fact, there's been a plan in motion before the foundations of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 says we were chosen in Him before the foundations of the world. So it's moving in a direction. Paul brings this little paragraph to a close when he says, all things are subjected to Him then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So when we look at that verse, there's something going on there, and it, it, may, it, kind of, it may be a head-scratcher for you, but I'm going to explain it here in just a minute. So the Son here essentially is going to present it all back to the Father for His glory. Everything, all His works, all His accomplishments, He, he presents to the Father as mission accomplished, job done. And it's all for the glory of God. And this is the direction that human history is moving. Now, I'm going to start from the end and work my way back. He says that he does this, that God may be all in all. So Jesus does this to show the supremacy of God, that there is nothing greater and higher than Yahweh. He is the great God of salvation. He is the great God over creation. He is the great God over everything. And all this is going to be done for His glory to show His supremacy to all. So He's not one of many gods. He is the God. He's not one of, of many kings. He is the King. He's not one of many lords. He is the Lord. And He will be shown through the mission of Christ. 
And the mission of the Son, then, is to glorify the Father. We establish that. And how does the Father honor the Son? Well, the Father honors the Son by giving Him the authority. That's what Jesus tells us in the Gospels. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what He tells His disciples. God honors the Son by giving the Son complete authority over all creation to work the plan of redemption that is sealed by resurrection. So when Jesus comes out of that tomb... It's a, it's, a, it's a battle cry of defeat. So he actually already makes it at the cross. When he says, it is finished, we just went over this on Friday night. That's his de- declaration of victory. And so the son takes the authority given by the father and he uses it for the redemption of his people. Paul does say, then the son himself will be subjected to him and it raises a question. We look at the Godhead and we think the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are equal. They share the same glory. They share in the same power. How could Paul speak of Christ being subjected to the Father? Well, this would be a subjection in function. And what I mean is that in the incarnation, the Son subject, subjected himself to the Father as a human being to come and to live and to die and to raise up as a human being for the good of humanity, for the good of His people. So it's not as if the Son is somehow lesser than the Father. He, this is the humility and sacrifice of Christ, beloved. He willingly came, took on flesh, subjected Himself to the Father in the incarnation so that you and I could be saved. That's what's going on here, and that has to sink in and be a beautiful, beautiful truth for us that the Lord of glory took on our flesh and lived our lives and died a horrific death so that we could be made right, so that we could stand and bear witness. I'm not what I was, not yet what I will be, but praise God, I'm not what I was. And it's not because I did it, it's because of what Christ did. And so when the Son completes the task, when the work is done, in love and humility, in love and grace, in honor of the Father, He spreads it all before Him and said, here is the pure spotless bride. She's she's yours, she's ours, and they rule and they reign. I love this truth. Because what this is telling us this morning is that the gospel gives us very rich life. It gives us a rich life. The the resurrection is such an important part of our faith. We don't merely believe that Jesus rose from the dead, though he did. And we believe that the resurrection is essential for us to be rightly related to God. And so in this way, we aren't merely celebrating a miracle, though we are. (laughs) We are celebrating the sin-shattering, death-crushing, soul-saving life of Christ. That's what we meet to celebrate. And by rising, Jesus made a promise to his people. When he comes out of that tomb, a promise is made to his people that when our earthly mission is done, we shall rise with him. We won't be these ethereal spirits living in the clouds. We will be new bodies in a new heaven, in a new earth, reigning and ruling with Jesus. So Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. And that's the best news you can hear today. That's the absolute best news you can hear today. Because if you're in Him, we've got to be encouraged and remember that we live the new resurrection life. This morning, if you were with us and you are not in Christ, I would urge you 
to come to the Lord because that's where hope exists, that's where life is, that's where we live, that's where we realize our full, full humanity. If you don't know the Lord, we have a promise in Scripture that God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him, that one who had no sin, we could become the righteousness of God. That's the most important event in a human being's life. My marriage is important. That event sticks out. The birth of my children is very important to me. But the night the Lord brought me down the aisle of a church and saved me is the most important thing that ever happened to me because I became connected to the resurrection life of Christ. And I stand here today because of it. That's the life we need. That's the treasure we need. That's the hope we need. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word and its power, the beauty and truth of it. Thank you for the miracle of resurrection and life. Thank you for the joy of resurrection and life. Oh, Father, you are merciful, you are generous, you are righteous, and you are holy. And I pray that we would see these attributes and seek to emulate them, but also know that in Christ we are those things. And Father, may that compel us to pursue righteousness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we thank you for Jesus and for all he's done. It's through his name we pray. Amen.